Welcome to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast, where we discuss scientific research in simple and exciting ways that is applicable to everyone. I'm Ben Rasmussen. And I'm McKay Heaton. And we are your hosts. All right, today to get us started, I'm going to tell a story from high school. This is called the $20 auction story. This is from my high school economics class that taught us an important behavioral economics principle. Our teacher told us that we were going to have an auction. He then pulled out a $20 bill and told us that we were going to bid on it. The $20 would go to the highest bidder. However, the second highest bidder would also have to pay whatever they bid without receiving anything in return. The bidding started out low with people bidding at $1, $2, $3, and the bids continued and the price continued to steadily increase. Slowly but surely, my classmates dropped out of the bidding, myself included, until there were just two bidders left that were quickly approaching $20. We were surprised to see that the two bidders continued to bid as they reached and exceeded $20. They were no longer bidding for some sort of gain, they were bidding in order to incur the minimum loss. They realized that although they would be losing money by continuing to up the bids, the person who had the highest bid would lose less money than the second highest bidder. The bidding continued until they reached $40, and one person finally couldn't take it anymore and dropped out. So in the end, the winner lost $20, and the loser lost $40, while all of us just sat there in shock. This dollar auction concept was developed by economist Martin Schubick, and is a great example of the power of the threat of a loss on human behavior, which is what we are going to be talking about today. So this episode is geared a little bit towards behavioral economics or how humans deal with money, how humans deal with resources. One term that we want to start off with and give you an introduction to is called prospect theory. So prospect theory assumes that losses and gains are valued differently, and thus individuals make decisions based on perceived gains instead of perceived losses. Also known as the loss aversion theory, the general concept is that if two choices are put before an individual, both equal, with one presented in terms of potential gains and the other in terms of potential losses, the former option will be chosen. So a classic example of that is this vaccine or disease treatment framing question. So consider two framings of two vaccine programs that can save 600 people affected by a virus. So in framing one, program A will save 200 people. Program B has a one-third chance of saving everyone and a two-thirds chance of saving no one. So that's number one. Number two is program A will leave 400 people dead. Program B has a a one-third chance that no one will die and a one-third chance that everyone will die. So per prospect theory and framing effect in psychology, you can predict that people prefer A in the first set and B in the second set. But once again, both of the way these are framed are logically equivalent. They just use different words and make it so that people feel that they are making a big gamble to save people or that they are automatically incurring a big loss. So in program A, it says in the first framing, it says this will save 200 people. Of the 600 people. Yeah. And then in the second one, it says, this will kill 400 people and save 200 people. So mm-hmm. they're saying essentially the same things, right? right? Yeah. So program A, no matter what, 200 people live, 400 people die. So no matter what, in program A, 200 people live, 400 people die. It's just worded different. Yeah. And then in program B, there's a one-third yeah. chance that everyone lives and a two-thirds chance that everyone dies. 
It's just but, worded differently. Yeah, but just based on the way you word this, people are more likely to choose one of these two options because they're afraid of incurring some big loss. So we're going to be talking about this principle of loss aversion today, but we're also going to be talking about another principle in behavioral economics called scarcity. So McKay, do you want to talk about scarcity? Yes. The study I chose to talk about is called The Effects of Supply and Demand on Ratings of Object Value. In the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, the authors are Werschel, Lee, and Adderwall. So this study is eye-opening. They took 146 female students recruited from a university to participate in the study. They chose female students just because it was easy to recruit them because most of the students were female in their classes that they recruited the students from. So the students were brought into the room and were told that they were participating in a consumer article study. On the table in front of the subjects were three things, mints, cigars, and cookies in a jar. So that tells you how old the article is. It's also kind of fun. Mints, cigars, cookies in a jar. <laughs> yeah. So this is, it was published in 1975, so it was a long time ago. Uh, they were told they would sample the products and rate them on a couple of different dimensions. What changed in the experiment was how many cookies were in the cookie jar that was in front of the participants. They had a scarce condition that had two cookies in the jar, and they had an abundant condition that had 10 cookies in the jar. So those who were in the scarce condition liked the cookies significantly more and rated the cookies as significantly more desirable and attractive than if than the abundant group people. Okay, so the two cookies were much better looking, much more desirable. <laughs> and you liked them And you better. liked them more than the 10 cookies. Yes, but when they say liked, they don't mean the taste improved. They, they just mean like the subjective liking. Mm -hmm. Just like affection for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. They actually, what surprised me the most is that the cookies taste rating never changed. Between the abundant and the scarce group, the rating of the taste of the cookie didn't change. The things that changed were how desirable it was, how attractive it was, and how much they liked it. Hmm. Weird, huh? Yeah, so same taste, but much more of an emotional attachment to this cookie, it seems like. Depending on how many cookies were in the jar, that's it. Hmm. That was the only thing. So the researchers... You know, researchers. They just threw a wrench in it, and they divided it, divided it into more groups. Classic yeah. researchers dividing totally. things into more groups. Totally. So, th But, you know, they learned more, and it's really cool. So what they did was they changed the amount of cookies that were in the jar while the subjects were in the room. So the subjects watched the cookies go from two cookies to ten cookies as they switched jars. Uh -huh. So what would happen is the researcher would explain to the subject what was going on and he would secretly push a button under the desk to signal another researcher to come in and say, hey, and then switch out the jars of the cookies. Mm. But he would give, the researcher who interrupted would give different reasons for switching out the jars. This is this is where it gets interesting. Mm -hmm. So in in one group, the new researcher that came in would say something like, hey, participants ate more cookies than I expected in my room. Can I switch jars with you real quick? 
And so he would walk into this 10 cookie jar room, interrupt and switch and put two cookies in place of the 10 cookies. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So he would do something like that, you know, pull it out and then and then the, you know, what the subject is seeing is, "Oh, people are eating these cookies," you know? Does that make sense? Yeah. They, there's less now. There there was more. There's less now. Right. Yeah. So the researcher, yeah. there's there's 10 cookies. Then some researcher comes in and says, oh, man, t- too many people ate these cookies. I need to switch. And then gives them a jar with two cookies. And the participant's thinking, oh, man, these cookies must be a hot commodity. I mean, we're inferring that they're – we're thinking right. that they're thinking that. Right. Who knows? So the the there was another group – that the experimenter also interrupted, but instead of saying, like, people ate all these cookies and I need to switch you, it was just like, hey, our cookie jars got switched by accident. I need mine back. And then he would switch them. Mm-hmm. So, it, again, it would go from 10 to 2 cookies, and then they would see what would happen in the difference. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So they did this, and then they also did it in reverse. So they took the two cookie jar and replaced it with the ten cookie jar. Mm-hmm. So they made all they they divided it into all of those groups. And in the ten in, in when they replaced the two cookies with ten cookies, they also gave two different excuses for switching the jar. Mm-hmm. Probably and, probably was it a, a neutral excuse and uh something along the lines of like hey I had extra cookies in my because no one wanted them here you can have this extra, yes these extra cookies yes those are the two groups was okay. people didn't eat as many as I thought they would here you can have mine and the other one was hey there's an accident I need my jar back mm-hmm. okay, okay that makes sense so they did it in both of those ways and so the conclusion that they came to was when the researcher who interrupted came in with two cookies in his jar and said everyone was eating his cookies and, and replaced the 10 cookie jar in front of the subject, the cookies were rated as significantly more liked, desirable, and attractive. And they were actually also thought to cost more than the other cookies, where the researcher said there was just an accident and switched the jars. Wait, so just by the researcher coming in and saying, hey, I need more cookies because everyone ate too many? participants thought that these cookies were worth more monetarily yes as well as they liked and desired them wow (laughs) crazy huh yeah that's really interesting and you know there was no significant difference between the two groups of when it was switched to more cookies Mm -hmm. does that make sense so there's no 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 difference between those groups okay the two became 10 um but the biggest thing that i thought was crazy was that out of all of these groups the the taste of the cookie was never significantly different. Hmm. They all thought the cookie tasted the same goodness level. Wow. So basically what's going on here is when all of the sudden a cookie in your mind becomes something more desirable, something because there's less of it, not only do you find it more attractive, more desirable, it seems like it costs more, but... Doesn't necessarily mean it's doesn't mean it's better at all. Oh yeah, doesn't it's not giving you a better experience. Right, it than tastes the, the same. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, which is which was interesting, very very interesting to hear. I mean, one one thing we should take into account was that only college women were in this study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a limitation. For and sure. so you know we have to think. Okay, well, does this apply to men? Does it apply to people outside of college age? So that's just one thing to take into account. But still. Learning mm-hmm. that is is very interesting and 
Um, I'm excited to hear what you have to say, and then we can talk about what we learn. Yeah, I mean, first off, I think it's a this is a really good example of this idea of scarcity. So something became more attractive just because there was less of it, and there was this emotional push to all of a sudden have it because there wasn't very much of it. Yeah, which is an interesting thing that happens in economics. Um, I've I've taken a few social psychology classes, and there's always a couple units on behavioral economics and how humans behave with money and with goods and resources and the biggest takeaway always is although humans would love to think that we act rationally with our money with our goods and our resources we do not and this is an example right here it is completely irrational to think a cookie is better looking more expensive more desirable just because there is less of it yeah so just keep that in mind as we continue to talk about this next study, which kind of drives home that point that humans don't necessarily act rationally with their resources. The paper is by Novemsky and Kahneman. It's published in 2005 in the Journal of Marketing Research. The paper is called The Boundaries of Loss Aversion. Kahneman's good. I've read a couple of his books, yeah. books and articles. Yeah, so Daniel Kahneman is one of the flagship researchers, kind of the the trailblazer for this idea of loss aversion of prospect theory he does a lot of things in the behavioral economics world so that's why that's why honestly why i chose this paper because it's by him and it has a really good summary of like the title says the boundaries of loss aversion so they were looking into this idea of loss aversion and how it affected participants decision making so participants were divided and placed into groups seller risky seller chooser buyer or risky buyer so participants were put into those five groups and the researchers gave them various choices based on what group they were placed in so first the choosers were told that they could either have a mug or a dollar amount that was comparable to a mug and in all these situations that the researchers put these people in the participants wrote down what they thought their good was worth and in this study the goods were either a pen or a piece of chocolate or a mug so the choosers would decide do i want this mug or do i want some a sum of money that is equivalent to this mug and how much do i think this mug is actually worth so in the next group sellers were given a good a mug pen or chocolate and they were told that the good was theirs to keep experimenters then presented an opportunity for them to sell the good at each of several prices if they refused to sell they would just keep the good if they didn't want to sell it and then once again participants would write down the dollar amount they thought this good was worth to them in the next group buyers had an opportunity to buy the good at various prices using their own money they were shown the goods and the price list for them and the buyers indicated whether they would be willing to buy the good at that price if they refused to buy the good then they neither spent nor received anything and then once again they wrote down what they thought these goods were worth risky sellers were given a good and then were told that it was theirs to keep they were then offered a gamble with equal chances they would win an amount of money and keep the good or lose the good and receive no money so once again they were given the good told it was theirs to keep and they could gamble and keep the good and get some money or they would not get any money and they would lose the good participants indicated whether or not they would take the gamble if they refused the gamble they would just keep the good and not get any money for it Finally, risky buyers were offered a gamble with equal chances to receive the good and pay nothing or pay for the good without receiving it. If they refused, they would just get nothing, not pay for anything. 
after everyone in the various groups were explained their conditions, the participants in all five of these groups made their choice. So once again, to summarize, because that was kind of a lot, you had the choosers who could choose whether they wanted a good or money that was comparable to how much the mug was worth. Sellers were given something and told they could sell it. Buyers were shown a list of things they could buy and asked if they wanted to buy anything. Risky sellers were given something until they could gamble to get some money, but they might not get that money and they might also lose that good. And then risky buyers were told they could get this good and not pay anything for it, or they could pay for the good and not receive it. Question for you. Yes. Were they given money to purchase this or was this out of their own pocket? This was out, For the buyers, this was out of their own pocket. Okay, so they were risking, their, their own money was on the line. Yeah, so their own money was on the line. Once again, it's just a few dollars because it's a pen, a chocolate bar, or a mug. Everything was... I think it was, if I'm remembering correctly, everything was worth less than $5. Okay. But it's still their own money. Yeah. So. I've, I've got a quick question. Yeah, go first. ahead. If you were in the risky seller group, what would you do? If I was in the risky seller group, I would, it's hard to say because it's just hypothetically right now. And I'm not sure how I'd feel actually in that situation. Yeah. But I think I would go for it. I totally, I, I, I would go for it too. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I was just, I was just wondering. <laughs> interested to what you would, yeah, you would do <laughs> that's a good question so after all is said and done the gambles and the transactions were all carried out the results are very interesting so sellers asked a much higher price for their good than buyers were willing to pay so what they mean by that is people in the selling group who were given this mug a chocolate bar a pen it was worth a lot more to them and they sold it at a much higher price and then buyers were willing to pay for it. So they were given a mug and the, the sellers all of a sudden thought, man, this, this mug is worth a lot to me because it's mine now. It's worth $7. And the buyers came along and said, that mug is just an ordinary mug. I'll pay three bucks for that. And so there was this huge discrepancy between what the sellers were willing to sell for once they had the objects in their possession and what the buyers were willing to buy for. Also, there was no difference between the price buyers were willing to pay and the money that choosers wanted to receive instead of the good. So the researchers concluded that the sellers weren't necessarily just trying to scam buyers because the choosers, they also could have tried to scam and say, I think this mug is worth $7. You should give me $7 instead of the mug. The choosers were honest or rational or whatever it is, practical in their decision in choosing the money over the mug and said $3 or $4 or whatever the average was. So there was no difference between the choosers and the buyers. Also, there was no difference in the amount of money that sellers and risky sellers were willing to sell for, and also no difference between what buyers and risky buyers were willing to pay. So kind of some complicated results here. It took me about four four reads through this paper to understand fully what was going on here. Yep, there was I'm, a lot of... I'm still processing. <laughs> I'm still a lot of stats. Out. So just once again to summarize, the sellers thought once they had these objects... They were worth a lot more than they actually were. Whereas the buyers and the choosers all agreed collectively, not as they didn't collaborate or anything, but they all said that the objects, the goods were worth the same amount of money, but the sellers thought they were worth a lot more than the buyers and the choosers did. Mm. So a big question that I think a lot of our listeners probably have right now is what in the world does this have to do with scarcity and loss aversion? So one thing that Kahneman has researched extensively and is also mentioned in this paper is something called the endowment effect. So when we possess something, the price that we're willing to sell for that object becomes higher than we, would, than we personally would be willing to pay 
for the same item. So it's an emotional and irrational attachment to a good. So kind of like these cookies in the scarcity article, just because these cookies were fewer and potentially perceived as a hot commodity, they were much more desirable, likable. And in the endowment effect, just the fact that we own something, all of a sudden this mug becomes ours and we have ownership and we feel that ownership of it. It becomes worth a lot more in a dollar amount than someone who's just looking at mugs on the store shelf. That's very interesting. The endowment effect. I like that. That, I mean, I like the phrases. I've never heard that, you know, and I've never really thought about, oh, this is mine, so it's more money. But mm -hmm. it totally is. Yeah. I tried to sell my car didn't work because I was like, <laughs> my car's worth more than that. And no one wanted to pay it. Uh -huh. Then my little brother also selling a Jeep that he like him and my dad bought, built and mm -hmm. rebuilt and made it super nice trying to sell it f for, you know, this much money, like super high. And now they're selling it for like $6,000 less uh -huh. because no one wants to buy it. Yeah. And so for sellers, the endowment effect was definitely at play here, which is a very common thing, like with your car, with the Jeep. The, this is important because it shows that although we like to think of ourselves, once again, as rational economic humans, we often let our emotions cloud our judgment and we make these irrational decisions. Um, so with your dad and your brother, for example, they've put a lot of work into this Jeep. And so there's this emotional attachment to it. And there's also just this, the endowment effect, this, this idea that I possess this and therefore it is worth more than if someone else were to possess it. I'm, I'm not willing to sell it for this price because I feel this emotional attachment to it. So tying this into this idea of loss aversion, which we haven't really mentioned yet, for sellers in this experiment, they saw the act of selling their good as some sort of loss, which is why they asked for more money in return for their goods than buyers thought it was worth. As humans, we are naturally more afraid of loss than we are excited about gains. So for example, if you get $5, you are much less happy about that than how sad you would be if you lost $5. So if you just to look on a graph, sadness is down on the graph and happiness is up, you get $5, it's a little bit of a jump. If you lose $5, it's a big loss. So that's what this idea of loss aversion means. The researchers concluded along with the endowment effect being at play here, the sellers were not willing to lose this object because they saw it as, oh wow, I just got this object and by me selling it, I need a lot more to make up for this loss of me not having this mug or this chocolate bar or this pen anymore. Interesting. Interesting. I I can I totally resonate with this loss aversion because mm -hmm. I, I notice it in myself. This is the first time I've heard about it. Uh huh. But I, I notice it as I think about the things that I try to sell and the things that I buy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And interesting. Yeah, and when there's an unexpected cost that comes up in our life, that hurts us a lot more than an unexpected gain comes in. So if you get a check from your grandparents, because they're the only ones who give checks these days, on your birthday, that isn't going to be as helpful for you happiness-wise as having to pay an unexpected $25 fee for something you're buying or something you're renting or whatever it is. That unexpected fee hurts you a lot more than that unexpected check helps you happiness-wise. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So just to kind of back up this point a little bit, there's another study that I found that was an early demonstration of this loss aversion in a riskless context that also showed the endowment effect. So these researchers used coffee mugs, once again, 
this is Kahneman's involved. Maybe he just has something with coffee mugs. He loves coffee mugs. <laughs> maybe he just he likes them. Yeah, maybe he's really lost averse to coffee mugs since he has a lot of them. Or he had a bunch extra in his house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So experimental participants were randomly assigned to be either sellers who were given a mug or buyers who were not given a mug. Sellers were asked about the minimum they would be willing to pay to accept to give up the mug. Buyers were also asked about the maximum they would be willing to pay to acquire the mug. On average, buyers were willing to pay no more than $2.87, but sellers asked for $7.12. Very expensive mug. <laughs> wow. Especially, this is, this is in the 90s. You got to think about that, too. That's wow. a very expensive mug. So the researchers proposed that the difference is explained by loss aversion for the mug. Sellers evaluate the mug as a loss, whereas buyers evaluate the mug as a gain. So we tend to rate our gains as less impactful than we rate our losses. Yes, that is a good summary. Exactly. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, this is really interesting to think about. So, McKay, what were your takeaways from going through this research and talking about this today? For me, I was thinking about the scarcity article, and I I thought of a moment in my life, which was three days ago, I was on Amazon and I was looking at a product. It was just a shirt that I needed to buy for the concrete pumping business. And it said, only two left in stock. Hurry, order soon. In, in, in red letters. <laughs> the red letters. The red letters. Oh. And I noticed that I was like, oh, I should buy it. But then I was like, I read this research earlier this <laughs> week and I was like, no, I shouldn't. You know, I just thought about how often that happens how often and and i've started to notice those sort of hurry deal end soon Mm -hmm. catchphrases in advertising on billboards you know on amazon on you know in the store where it's just like only you know like these are the last items yeah or back in the day with those i don't know if i'm old enough to say back in the day yet but (laughs) back in the day i guess there was those infomercials all the time where they'd say but if you act now you can get a second one for the price of one and they show a timer counting down on the commercial that says you have 29 minutes and 58 seconds 57 56 55 to get this deal you have to act now or it's going to be gone yeah so i thought about that and how it applies to Uh, scarcity but when i heard you you know you talk about loss aversion i'm thinking about you know i think those kinds of things tend to work on people because it's like a double hit with Mm -hmm. scarcity and loss aversion yeah because if it's scarce only two left hurry order soon it's if i don't order it then i don't get that object Mm -hmm. so that's a loss for me and that loss is more impactful to me than the gain does that make right. sense so yeah. so not buying it you'd be like oh this is a huge loss oh i should have bought it oh mm-hmm. and then if you actually did buy it you're just like oh, i bought it <laughs> right yeah does that make sense yeah. so it's like a double whammy when when advertisers do that mm-hmm. and if you think about it i it's not infrequent that i look at amazon just to buy something i need or just kind of just to check on the price of something if I'm thinking about buying something and I don't necessarily see any given product and by me not having it I don't incur that as a loss but by framing it as something that is scarce people will take that as all of a sudden it's something that I need to have and me not getting that is all of a sudden a loss when you didn't lose anything really you just don't have an object that you originally did not have (laughs) (laughs) you don't have an object you never had yeah exactly and so I that's what I learned 
today. And I'm going to definitely think more about my thoughts and emotions as I shop. And not even as I shop, but as I'm advertised to. Mm -hmm. I'm going to think about, okay, do I really need this object? What is the face value of this object? What is it actually worth? What do I feel like it's worth? What are they asking for? You know, I'm going to think about it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to go crazy thinking about it, but I'm just going to notice it a little bit more. Yeah, it's just something to think about as you're kind of browsing the the internet the shopping world or driving on the freeway and seeing a billboard whatever it is Mm -hmm. it's just something to think about Mm -hmm. and i had a similar takeaway when you are feeling pressure to buy something or to make a purchase because it is portrayed as being scarce question whether this item is actually scarce so if there's two cookies left in a jar think to yourself are these the are these the last two cookies on earth or can i get more cookies somewhere or if the Amazon has the red letters of death saying that there's only two items left, think about, okay, realistically, when are, first off, how fast are these items going to go? Are people just like really dying to buy this concrete pumping shirt that I am? <laughs> or are they going to be back in stock soon? Slash, are they not actually going to be out of stock that soon? Do I have more time? So you can save yourself the regret of making a hasty purchase that you later regret if you're willing to just kind of step back and say, okay, is this actually scarce or do I have more time to think about this and look elsewhere? Yeah. People were definitely buying out those concrete pumping shirts. (laughs) (laughs) So another thing that I thought of is try to put your purchases and potential economic losses in a more emotionally manageable context. In life, there are a lot of unexpected costs that arise and they can weigh us down and give us anxiety when if we were just to expect these unexpected financial things to come up we wouldn't be so weighed down by the losses so one example i thought of this is a personal example for me anytime something wrong happens with my car it is a huge loss for me so i go to get my oil changed and part of me doesn't even want them to do their complimentary inspection because i'm just thinking of the hundreds of dollars of repairs they're going to find that i'm going to need to make and (laughs) that is something that really bothers me every time i go to take my car in and when i'm driving there's honestly a part of me that's just kind of like keep chugging keep chugging don't break down please um but if you think about this in a gains mindset and in a loss aversion mindset, by me investing $400 or $600, however much it is, in breaks, for example, I am saving myself thousands of dollars in the hospital bills I would have to spend if my brakes went out while I was driving on the freeway and I got into an accident. So think there's plenty of ways that you can frame these unexpected fees, unexpected costs in a gains mindset by framing it as an investment. So I'm investing $400 in my car by getting new brakes so that when I'm driving, my brakes don't go out and I don't end up in the hospital with way more bills than I would have if I would have just bought the brakes. I love that, Ben. That's good advice. I'm going to try and do that this week. You have been listening to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast. Thank you for listening to our show. We really appreciate it. We have shared with you only a few articles of the thousands that have been published on this subject. Though we wish we could go more in depth, we hope you've enjoyed our introduction and interpretation of this topic. We don't claim to know everything, but we have shared with you our takeaways from reading this research. I'm McKay. And I'm Ben. And we hope you have a great rest of your day.